Well, uh, we're going to be all over the scripture this morning. We're going to be starting in Jeremiah chapter 6 in the third message of our Godology series. And so what I, what I want to do is I want to read this passage, and then, then we'll I'll give you a little bit of more of a roadmap of what we're going to do. So let's look at Jeremiah 10, excuse me, chapter 10, verse 6. Lord, you remember whenever you see that O-R-D in capital letters, that's the Hebrew name Yahweh, the name of God. Lord, there is no one like you. You are great. Your name is great in power. Who should not fear you, king of the nations? It is what you deserve. For among all the wise people of the nations and among all their kingdoms, there is no one like you. They are both stupid and foolish, instructed by worthless idols made of wood. Beaten silver is brought from Tarshish and gold from Uphaz. The work of a craftsman and of a goldsmith's hands is clothed in blue and purple, all the work of skilled artisans. But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and eternal King. I want you to look at two phrases in this text. And this is basically going to be our outline. We'll, we'll get to that in just a second. Lord, there is no one like you, the living God. There is no one like you, the living God. We're going to unpack those two phrases this morning. Before we do that, let's pray, and then we'll, we'll sort of dive in. Not sort of, we're going all in. Lord, thank you for this morning again just prayed uh, for, for the students and the teachers. We just want to come now and ask in humble reverence that you would, you would just strike us with the awe of who you truly are. That we would not be satisfied with the cliche words that we know about you. You're powerful, you're good, you're mighty, you're sovereign. Whatever words we think of. That those wouldn't just be cliched words in our minds, but the truth of who you are would change our emotional responses to the situations in the day-to-day of our lives. When we, this week, are stressed and frustrated with our kids for not getting ready for school quickly enough, that you would remind us of the truth of who you are and it would change our response. When this week we are frustrated with someone who is uh, our coworker or some situation in our life and our work or education, that we would remember who you are and it would change and shape the way we respond. For there is no one like you. You are the living God. We ask you to shape us by your spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. So um, last summer and this, uh, this summer... I've spent some time just like thinking and praying. I'm going to try to look over here too, but like it's like, it's going to probably be ratio, right? So it's like, um, uh, there, there's a famous, this is not related at all to the sermon, but there was a famous Scottish preacher who died at the age of 29, uh, gave his life for the Lord. And he, he said, Robert Murray McShane said, for every one look at yourself, take 10 looks at Christ. So I'm probably going to be like, every one look at you, I'm going to take 10 looks. No, I'm just kidding. Um, as I thought and prayed about what God would want to teach us uh, this next year. So we kind of follow an academic calendar year, a rhythm of 20, you know, fall to, to spring and into summer, like the school year. That's just kind of the way the rhythm of our society works. Uh, just spend some time with the Lord, spend some time thinking and praying. 
about what he wants to teach us, what he wants to teach me and teach you uh, this next year, and uh, to, to sort of plan that out. Sometimes I think we sometimes think of being led by the Spirit as syn- being synonymous with spontaneity, but you know, God is a long-term planner. God loves to put plans in motion. He put plans in motion from before the foundation of the world. And so uh, I think planning can be as spirit-led and spirit-filled as spontaneity. And so um, as, as I was planning, I thought, you know, I think, I think it would be good to do a series on our core values, wholehearted worship, authentic community, and joyful mission. And so initially, I had planned to do a two-week series on, the, on God called Godology 101, and then to do three weeks on our core values, worship, community, and mission. But as we got into the Godology series, it seemed like people were resonating with it um, in, in a particularly uh, profound way. And I know I was really enjoying it. And so I just thought, okay, if we're talking about wholehearted worship, what is a better way to get at that than actually just talking about who God is? We've been talking about authentic community at the Gather and Grow gatherings this summer. And then uh, we are going to talk about mission, but we're going to be talking about it from a somewhat different perspective the last Sunday of August. And then what we're going to do in September is we're going to jump into a series in the Bible, uh, a book of the Bible. We're just going to do what I typically like to do, like most of the time, start at chapter one, verse one, and just keep going till you're finished. And I'm not going to tell you yet what book that's going to be. I'm going to keep you on pins and needles. I will, I will share that information soon. And we're going to start that uh, the, the second or third week of September. And so as we're talking about this series, the last couple weeks, we've talked about um, the doctrine of the Trinity, who God is as a triune God. We talked about the name of God. We talked about God's name in the Old Testament is revealed as the Lord or Yahweh. Um, and, and how the New Testament, in the New Testament and in the gospel, God, Yahweh, says even more specifically that his name is not just Yahweh, but his name more fully revealed is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That is the name of God. The one name of the one God is three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This week, what I want to I ask the question and answer the question is, what is the triune God like? What is the triune God like? What are his character traits? What are his, what's sometimes called his attributes? What is true about the triune God? Now, I want to give you two types of character traits that are true of God. There are two types of character traits that are true of God. There are ways we cannot imitate God, and there are ways we can imitate God. So, so, theological lingo and jargon. Some people are into that and geek out about that, and some people don't, let's glaze over. It's okay, just just hang with me. Ways we cannot imitate God. These are called incommunicable attributes. That means they cannot be communicated or transferred to us. These are things that are only true of God and cannot be true of us, like eternity. Second thing is that ways we can imitate God. These are called communicable attributes because they can be communicated to us. They are things we can mirror in some way. The fact that God is kind or that God is wise, that God is good, loving, merciful, or righteous. These are things that we can and we should and we really must imitate. That's what the the, the Ten Commandments and the law of God is based on these communicable attributes of God. Things that we can imitate. So... What I want to talk to you about this morning are 
are two of God's most profound, incommunicable attributes or things that are true of God that are totally unlike us in any way. That's the, that, so so, the, so the, the, the outline for the rest of the morning is that, those two phrases from Jeremiah 10. No one like God and the living God. So the first thing, there's no one like God. The triune God is not like any other. The triune God is not like any other. And what we're going to do here is I'm just going to blast you with a water cannon of Bible verses to show you how true this is. It's everywhere in the Bible, starting with the verse we started with, Jeremiah 6, 6. Lord, there is no one like you. You are great. Oh, back. Uh, you are great. Your name is great in power. There is no one like you. The... the um, there's a Latin phrase that translates, God is not in a category. It's not like God is like a thing that's like part of creation is just a little bit better or, or even just a lot bit better than us. There, there's a total chasm between what God is like and what we are like. God is in his, he is just God and God alone and everything else is down here. We learned in science class about, you know, the kingdom, you know, like kingdom species, you know, phyla, all, all that stuff. God is transcendent above all of those things. He, he is bigger and beyond any box we might try to put him in. Now, Sometimes people think, okay, you can't put God in a box. That means you shouldn't try to describe him. You shouldn't try to say true things about him. You shouldn't try to, you know, theology just tries to put God in a box. And the reality is what, what theology does, what the doctrine of God does, what the Bible does is it tries to explain to us, however incapable we are of really comprehending it, tries to explain to us how great God is. It's not putting God in a box. It's talking about how God transcends all boxes, all categories. To describe God or to try, try to point to what the Bible says about him is not to put God in a box. It's simply to say what God has said about himself. God can't put himself in a box and he reveals himself to us. And so we can speak truly and know him truly. After the Exodus, the Israelites sang to him here in Exodus 15, Lord, who is like you among the gods? Who is like you? glorious in holiness, revered with praises, performing wonders. And this is rhetorical, right? The answer is who? No one. There's no one. No power, no, no Pharaoh, no one is like you. This was after the Exodus. Remember all of the plagues of Egypt. Those were plagues designed to assault specific Egyptian deities, specific Egyptian gods, and God shows his absolute power over all perceived power. God is God alone. After wandering in the wilderness for four decades, the people of Israel, they're standing on the edge of the Jordan River, about to enter the promised land, and Moses is speaking to them, and he's praying for them, and he's praying to God, and he's preaching to them. That's what the book of Deuteronomy is, by the way, is Moses' final words to Israel before they enter the promised land. And he says, he says, Lord God, you have begun to show your greatness and your strong hand to your servant. For what God is there in heaven or on earth who can perform deeds and mighty acts like yours? There's no God who can do what you did. No, Moses knew this because he knew that his 
staff turned into a snake. And the, the, the magicians of the, the Egyptian king could somehow replicate this. But then Moses' staff and the snake ate the others because there's no one who can do what God can do. Moses, in just the next chapter, calls on the people to remember. He says, you, to the Israelites, you were shown these things so that you would know that the Lord is God and there is no other besides him. So he's saying, God delivered you from Egypt. He delivered you from slavery. He set you free. He lets you plunder the Egyptians and all of their wealth so that you would know that he is God alone. And he reminds them, today recognize and keep in mind that the Lord is God in heaven above and on earth below. There is no other. Some of you know the story of Hannah. She couldn't have a child, and she, she begs God for a child, and God f- answers her prayer, and she dedicates this child to the Lord and lets him grow up in the temple to be a servant of God for his whole life, the child Samuel. And she says in her prayer of thanks to the Lord, there is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one besides you, and there is no rock like our God. When Solomon or excuse me, when God promised David that he would have an heir to sit on the throne, David praised God and he said, this is why you are great, Lord God. There is no one like you. There is no God besides you. As all we have heard confirms. Solomon dedicates the temple. He says the same thing. He says, Lord God of Israel, There is no God like you in heaven above or on earth below who keeps the gracious covenant with your servants who walk before you with all their heart. There is no one like you. When the kingdom of Assyria besieged the city of Jerusalem, now what Assyria would do, it was a superpower of the day and they would they would lay siege to cities. What a siege was is they would surround with their massive army the walls of the city and cut off all supplies. And they would just wait it out. And they had tens of thousands of soldiers, 100,000 soldiers around the city of Jerusalem. And they send messengers to King Hezekiah. And they say, surrender. You, you, they, this was national, international news. The Assyrians come to town and you're toast. It's over. They besiege you. You have no way to get food and water into the city. It's only a matter of time. So what does Hezekiah do? He goes to the Lord and he prays. And this is recorded in um, uh, other parts of the Bible and also here in Isaiah. It says, Lord of armies. armies." We learned about this phrase in Haggai. Yahweh Sabaoth, the, the, the God who is superior to the Assyrian army. He's more supernaturally powerful than the greatest human superpower. Lord of armies, God of Israel, enthroned between the cherubim. You are God. You alone of all the kingdoms of the earth. You made the heavens and the earth. Listen closely, Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, Lord, and see. Hear all the words that Sennacherib, that's the king of Assyria, he would have been like, more well-known than the president of the United States is in 2019. Everyone knew who Sennacherib was. He was the most powerful man on earth. Hear the words that Sennacherib has sent to mock the living God. Lord, it is true that the kings of Assyria have devastated all these countries and their lands. They have thrown their gods into the fire, for they were not gods but made from wood and stone by human hands. 
So he's saying Assyria came in to town and they destroyed the city. They came, they sieged the city, they destroyed the city and they took the idols of that nation and they melted them in the fire because they were made of metal or they burned them in the fire because they were made of wood because they were no gods at all. And he says, they've destroyed them, but now God save us from his power so that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, Lord, are God, you alone. God's salvation is for the purpose of displaying his total unique power and glory to the nations. God is like nothing else and no one else. There is no one like our God. There's that song. There is no, right? You know the song. You've heard it on Way FM or whatever. But do you believe it? Do you feel it deep in your gut that there is no one like our God? It's literally impossible to illustrate how different God is from everything else that is not God. The difference between God and God's creation, that is everything else that exists, it's either God, the triune God, or creation. That's it. And the the difference between God and his creation is like infinitely greater than the difference between the single cell amoeba and the human brain, or the difference between dial-up and high-speed internet. Um, it's like the Pony Express or instant text messaging. It's infinitely greater. I was listening to this thing this week about 5G wireless and how it's just like exponentially faster than 4G and how it's like everything's going to be connected and toothbrushes and everything. It's like actually a little bit scary, but it's like, it's like not just a little bit better. It's exponentially better. And that isn't even a, that's just like nothing compared to the infinite transcendence of God who is like no other. God is different. God is unique. There is no one like him. We could talk about all the ways this is true, but let's just focus in on one. And it's that last part of Jeremiah 6.10. The triune God is independent. Oh, go back. Sorry. Is independent and self-sufficient. He is the living God. He is independent and self-sufficient. He is the living God. Okay, now we see here in Jeremiah 6.10, but the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the eternal King. So we talked the last couple weeks about how Hebrew word God is actually often in the Hebrew Bible. The Old Testament is a plural word. It's talking about one God, but it's a plural word. And there's been a lot of attempts by, you know, the rabbis and different people that explain this, but we know the reason it's plural is because God is a trinity. That's why the, the word is plural. Elohim, God, Hebrew reads right to left, Elohim is plural, and so is the word living. He is the living God, but it's one God, but it's plural because it's talking about the fullness of his divine life. That the Trinity is foreshadowed in the Old Testament. We talked about that two weeks ago. It's on the podcast on the website if you're interested. in uh, that, that sermon was called, God, called Godology 101. Last week was 102. This week is 103. God's, one, one theologian says that God's is life from himself and in himself. That he is a God who is life in himself. Exodus chapter 3. Moses is looking for his sheep, and he finds this bush that's on fire, right? You know the story, Exodus 3.1. Moses was shepherding his flock. 
the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian. He led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire within the bush. And Moses looked and he saw that the the bush was on fire but was not consumed. He... The bush was on fire, but was not consumed. One, one writer says, the bush was God's redemptive power in, present in the bush. The fire was in the bush, but preserving the bush. But the fire was not dependent on the bush for its energy to burn. It was a most pure fire, a fire that was nothing but fire, a fire that was not a compound of other energy sources, but had the energy source in itself. So this idea that, the, you know, what do you need if you want to have a fire? You need fuel for the fire. You need wood or something that will fuel the fire. But this fire didn't need the bush to burn. That's why the bush wasn't consumed. It's because the fire existed within itself. This is a symbol or or an illustration of the fact that God has life in himself. All of us have life from someone else. We have life from our mom and dad. We have life sustained by food and water and air. We are sustained. Our life is not independent. We are dependent on all sorts of things. God is completely and fully independent, like the fire that didn't need the bush to burn. Now, Moses appears, excuse me, God appears to Moses and Moses, he says, go to the Israelites. And then Moses said, if I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? What should I tell them? And God replied to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the Israelites, the Lord Yahweh. So what does that mean? I am and Yahweh, they are synonymous. That for Yahweh to be is simply to be. He is existent by himself of himself, and he needs nothing and no one else. Not only is he unique and unlike anyone else or anything else, he doesn't need anything else. He is completely self-existent and self-sufficient. The God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, And the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever and how I am to be remembered in every generation. God doesn't need anything or anyone. He's unlike anything or anyone. And and, and it's just, we don't even know, we, we can't think in these terms. Because nothing else in our world is like this. The only thing I can think of that is sort of, a pale shadow of this, other than the burning bush, is Iron Man, okay? So Tony Stark is in prison because he's a weapons dealer, and he gets captured by some terrorists, and he, he gets shrapnel in his chest, and, and this guy puts an electromagnet in his chest to keep the shards from puncturing the, the, the you know, chambers of his heart and killing him. And Tony Stark, in this little cave, creates this arc reactor, this this thing that creates power by itself through nuclear fusion or fission. I don't know. I'm not a chemist. I don't know what the deal is. But anyway, he's got this thing in his chest that doesn't need to be recharged, that doesn't need any other power source. It's just in there, and it's just, it is power in itself. And that is just a pale 
feeble shadow of the fact that God is life and power and love in himself and of himself, needing nothing, needing no one. Look what he says to this, through the psalmist um, in Psalm 50. He uses some rhetorical questions to communicate this truth. And he's talking to them about their sacrifices because they like, they're sacrificing to God. And sometimes we think like we're doing God a favor by, by giving our life and ourself and stuff to him. Like, man, isn't God lucky that he's got my money or my time? Or he's got, isn't God, like, man, God must be pretty happy with this. And they were, they were like, isn't God lucky that like we're taking our, our best bull and we're like killing it for him or are taking our goats and we're killing it for him. And God's like, no, 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 no. You're, you're missing it. I will not take a bull from your household or male goats from your pens. For every animal of the forest is mine and the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird of the mountains and the creatures of the field are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you. For the world and everything in it is mine. Now, he's not saying he does get hungry. He, he's saying Even if I were, which I'm not, I wouldn't tell you because I don't need you. It's not like I need your bull and your goat to keep me from getting hungry. Do do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? He's saying, you're making these offerings. You think they they don't give me anything that I need. They're not about me. They're about you. They're not about my need. They're about your need. You need to know what sustains you. And it's not your flocks. It's not your bulls and your goats. It's not your stuff that sustains you. What sustains you is the living God. It says, sacrifice a thank offering to God and pay your vows to the Most High. Call on me in a day of trouble. I will rescue you and you will honor me. He says, I don't need anything from you, but you need everything from me. John 5, 26, Jesus says this, for just as the father has life in himself, so also he's granted to the son to have life in himself. None of us have life in ourselves. Now we have life, we are alive, but every one of us, we will cease to be alive without a lot of things continuing to happen. And, And, you know, If you go long enough without eating, your life will leave you. If you go long enough without drinking, your life will leave you. If you go long enough without all sorts of things, if you go long enough without breathing, your life will leave you because you don't have life in yourself. You have life as a gift from someone else. You are dependent, but God has life in himself, and he is granted to the Son to have life in himself. This doesn't mean that the Son was created by God. This means that the Father has eternally given life to his Son in the eternal communion of the triune nature. Paul preaches to the intellectual elites in the ancient world, would have been like going to like one of the biggest most elite universities like Harvard or whatever, and just speaking. He's speaking this is who he's speaking to the Areopagus in in Greece, and he says, the God who made the heavens and everything in it, he is the Lord of heaven and earth. He does not live in shrines made by hands. Neither is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives everyone life and breath 
in all things. Paul writes to Timothy late in his life. He's talking about um, a certain situation. He says, God will bring this about in his own time. Then he just can't help but praise God. He says, he is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone is immortal. Who alone is immortal. The only one who has life that cannot be extinguished. Who lives in an unapproachable light who no one has seen or can see. To him be the glory and the honor and the power. Every December we uh, do a family elf night where we watch the movie Elf with Will Ferrell, a Christmas classic. And um, we watch Elf. And Elf, if you haven't seen it, it came out in like 03, so I'm sorry to give away the ending for you. But uh, it's based on the story of Santa Claus. And uh, in the story, Santa Claus needs Christmas cheer to keep his sleigh in the air. His, he's got this little clausometer on his, on his sleigh. And the sleigh flies based on how many people believe in Santa. And so the, the, the you know, like the, the part of the movie is like, how is Santa's sleigh going to fly without Christmas cheer? And so they got to get more people to believe in Santa so that Santa's sleigh will fly. And, and this is kind of a theme in Christmas movies, right? Where Santa depends on belief in order to do what Santa does. This is totally opposite of who the true and living God is. God doesn't depend on a single person believing in him. God could go without a single person on earth believing in him. He could go without a single person on earth worshiping him. He could go without a single person on earth giving or sacrificing to him, and he would be exactly as fine as he is and has been for eternity. God doesn't depend on you in any way, shape, or form. And he doesn't depend on anything. He depends only on his own self-sufficient triune life. There's no one like the living God. He's infinitely beyond us. This is what makes the truth of this last point so shocking. There's a, there's a song I really like by 10th Avenue North called Control. And the first line is, God, you don't need me but somehow you want me. That's, 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 that's the sermon. God, you don't need me, but somehow you want me. You are completely self-sufficient. The theological word is aseity, ah, from in Latin, say himself, from himself. God, God needs nothing. He doesn't need me. He doesn't need you, but somehow he wants us and somehow he loves us. The triune God made you for life with him. The triune God made you for life with him. In his abounding grace, he made the world to have fellowship with him. He made people and he made you to have fellowship with him. And this is true life, to know the God who is life. Jesus says, it's one of our theme verses as a church, a thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come so they may have life and have it in abundance. Jesus offers life because he's the only one who is life. He is life itself. Our church exists to help people find life like God intended. God is life in himself and of himself. And he designed this world to be full of life. And he made, he made you and he made me. He made 
The people in South Florida and in Lighthouse Point and Deerfield Beach and Pompano Beach and Boca Raton and everywhere out as we move further out in concentric circles from this spot, he made every one of them for abundant life. And so many people are missing out on life like God intended them to live. He made us to swim and to soak in the infinite ocean of his life and his love and his goodness and his glory. But the problem is we've looked other places. We've looked to other things. That's, that's what sin really is. Sin is looking for life in anything other than the only true source of life. It's looking for life in something that God created rather than in God who is the creator. It's finding goodness and glory in something that is not God and not being led by that thing to God. When Laura and I were first dating, we were living in Louisville, Kentucky, and we lived in this apartment complex where a lot of students in the school we were in uh, lived, and it had like these three tiers. It was kind of a, on a hill. She lived in the upper tier. I lived in the middle tier. And right above, kind of up the hill from us is this road. It was this fun, uh, this road with all these shops and restaurants and, um, you know, just different spots called Frank, Frankfurt Road. And we would, we would often like go to dinner, play, uh, you know, work in coffee shops and, and hang out on Frankfurt Road. And we'd walk up and down in the evening. One night we were, it was the night before she was going out of town uh, for something. She was doing something. I think she was coming down here actually. And uh, we just walked up and down Frankfurt Avenue. We went to dinner and hung out, and we were, went and got coffee. And uh, it, it was kind of cold. Um, that's this thing where it's like your body feels like you need more clothing on. I know you don't feel that much here in South Florida these days. Um, and so she borrowed, like, I had this zip-up kind of like, it was sort of like a workout jacket, you know, that, um, that I let her wear, and she, you know, put on herself. And, and then we went home and said goodnight, and put my jacket away or whatever, and she left, and I'm all sad, you know, because we're like a new in love, and, and I'm looking at her MySpace pictures, and <laughs> like, I miss, I miss you so much, and hoping she's not falling in love with another guy in the, in the seven days she's gone, you know, and uh, one, one day, I, a couple days into her, her trip, I got that jacket back out, and I, I went to put it on, and you know, it smelled like her, it smelled like her, it smelled... And I was just like, I can't wear this. This is sacred. And I just put my face into it. And was, oh my gosh, it, it was her. It was her aroma. It was it's it was her presence in just this faint way when she wasn't with me. And I didn't wear it. I just wanted to like I wanted that scent to stay on there until she got back. So I didn't wear it. I found something else to wear. This is what we do with God. Imagine instead of eventually wearing that jacket, I took it and I put it in a special spot and I put it in a frame and I, I kind of went to it and like smelled it every day and the, faint got, the scent got fainter and fainter and fainter. And all the while, Laura's come back in town. And she's like, hey, you want to get coffee? You want to hang out? I was like, no, I got I to spend time with this jacket. <laughs> this is what we do. God gives us good gifts. He gives us an aroma of his presence. He gives us things that are a glimmer of his glory that, that are intended to remind us of him and are good things. But when he's present with us and we're focused on those things instead of him, we're totally missing the point. 
We're ignoring him and stuffing our face in the faint aroma of his presence in the created things that he has made. We're enamoring ourselves with the killer bees we talk about, right? Birthday parties, ball games, brunches, and boat excursions, or whatever it may be for you. This is what sin is. It's finding our joy. It's finding our delight. It's finding God where God is not, in his creation rather than in him himself. Because God the Father sent God the Son to become a man, Jesus Christ, so that he could bring us back into life with God like we were intended to live. Jesus Christ, he is the only life. He is the only life. He's the only way to God, not just because God is exclusive, because God is like bougie. Like it's, he's the only way to life because he is the only one who is life. Jesus Christ was the only one who was fully God and fully man, who brought together God and not God in one person, And lived a perfect and sinless life, unlike us, who died a sinner's death in our place, who was buried and raised from the dead. The living God hung on the cross in the man Christ Jesus and gave his life because death is the inevitable result of seeking life from anything that is not life. When we look for life from anyone or anything other than life himself, we only find death. The scent And the aroma of God's presence eventually will wear off and we'll have nothing. But Jesus Christ took the death that we deserve so that we could have life again. He was crucified, buried, and raised from the dead. And death was defeated forever. This is why Jesus is the only way. Jesus said this. He said, I am the way, the truth and the life. Not just, not just I, I, I can get you to life, but I am the life. Every other religious system, every other philosophy, every other worldview, every other way of living life looks for life in something that's created by God. Every other religious, philosophical, life plan system is stuffing its face into the faint aroma of God's jacket when God is right there saying, I'm here, if you would turn to me. Jesus offers us reunion with God because he is God in human flesh, who was crucified for our sins, buried and raised from the dead. And if we turn to him and trust in him, he will reunite us and give us life like God intended there was an ancient saint named St. Saint Anselm, and uh, he, he lived in tens, the tens, not like the 1900s, like he lived in the 10 hundreds, 1000 AD, 1078. He wrote a book, wrote a, a couple books. He says, I was created so that I might see you, but I have not done what I was created to do. How wretched human beings are. They have lost the very thing for which they were created. Hard and terrible was their fall. Alas, think what they have lost and what they have found. Think what they left behind and what they kept. They have lost the happiness for which they were created and found an unhappiness for which they were not created. They left behind the only source of happiness and kept what brings nothing but misery. It's insanity, but that's what sin does. It makes us crazy and to do stupid things. 
Why are you wandering through so many things, you insignificant mortal, seeking the goods of your soul and of your body? Love the one good, and he's talking about God there, in which are all good things, and that is enough. Desire the simple good, which is the complete good, and that is enough. What do you love, O my flesh? What do you long for, O my soul? It is there. Whatever you love, whatever you long for, it is there. Turn from your sin. Trust in Jesus. Ask him to help you feel emotionally what you believe mentally. He's right there. He's waiting for you. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, who sent his Son, become a man to live the sinless life we didn't live and we don't live, to die the death that sin deserves, to be buried and raised from the dead so that we can be reunited with you and we could be restored to life with the God who is unlike anything else or anyone else, who is life in himself and of himself. Who You don't need us, but somehow you want us. In your grace, you made us. And in your grace, even when we turn away from you after you made us, you offer us a way back to you. Help us not to despise that, Lord. Help us to love others enough to desire that for them as well. That whatever life may look like, whatever it may seem like, like is the good life that someone may be living or the bad life someone may be living, that if it's not life with you, it is no life at all. Help us to believe that and to feel that. Help our emotional responses to be conditioned by the truth of the gospel and the truth of who you are. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.